Well, hey guys, uh, my name is Greg, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians together. Excited to dive into this with you. Uh, I just want to say welcome, man. We're sitting in a gymnasium in chairs that were set up this morning by a group of friends who came in early, and uh, just want to constantly remind us every single Sunday to ad nauseum that remember, we are a people, not a building, right? The church is God's people, everyone who's been purchased by Christ, who gather together, and I'm so glad we get to do that and gather here. Um, I just saw this morning that a pastor in Canada was arrested for gathering together. So we really do have something to be thankful for that we get to. But I tell you what, if they come and they want to handcuff us and take us, let's do this. All right? Let's do this. All right. Well, we're gonna, I want to show you guys a picture. We're talking about value today. And I want to show you this picture here. Maybe you recognize it. Uh, this uh, picture right here is painted by an artist named Banksy. And Banksy, nobody really knows who he is. He's anonymous. And this picture last year uh, was sold for $1.4 million, okay? Now, when you guys look at this, you guys think it costs probably on Amazon, what, $19.95? It's like worth barely with the paper that it's on. I look at that and I'm like, that, that's just a little better than my eight-year-old daughter. But here's the thing is, the value of this picture uh, has been dictated by what somebody was willing to pay for it. Am I right? Uh, and somebody was willing to pay $1.4 million for this picture. And so now this picture is worth $1.4 million, apparently. That's what it's worth, and, uh, which is really interesting, okay? Here's the thing is, as a people, we are always looking around trying to figure out what is our value. Many of you guys know the website Forbes, right? Uh, The company Forbes, they dictate or they uh, showcase what people's value is monetarily. And you can see the rankings of who's more valuable than the other. And, uh, but it's not just Forbes that does this. We do this to ourselves all the time. And what we do is a lot of times we'll look to uh, not just how much money we make, but uh, maybe how pretty we are or lack thereof. We'll look at, you know, how, how much we work. We'll use our work as a way to dictate our value. How much can we build? How many hours can I put in? What kind of company can I put together? Right? We will uh, do it in our sports. If we win the state championship, we're the best. That's my value. If we lose, therefore, I'm not that valuable. We're constantly doing it. Even when you come into this room, you will look side to side and try to figure out, what is my value? Where do I stack up? The reality is that you do have a value. And uh, if something's value is dictated by what somebody's willing to pay for it, what was God willing to pay to get you? His son. The blood of the only son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He paid with his own blood. And so God has given us a value. And that value is far more expensive than any portrait, any painting in the whole world. All of them throughout the history of the world combined. We cannot equate the value of what God feels for you. We can't compare it. But for some reason, uh, we can have a tendency to forget the gospel and forget the value that God has placed on our life. We can forget that and fall back into the traps of looking to other things and other people to establish a value for ourselves. And the reason is we don't trust in what God says. We don't trust in the gospel. And uh, what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 4, we've been seeing it through 1 Corinthians 1 all the way to now 4 as he concludes the first section of Corinthians. Um, We see that these men and these women in the Corinthian church, which were people just like us, they were looking side to side trying to figure out what their valuation was. 
and they're doing compare and contrast against one another, right? They did this with their leaders. Well, I like the way that that leader says it. He's more valuable, in my opinion, than Peter. I like Apollos a little bit more than Paul. And so they're doing that. And here's the thing is, that's a toxic thing to do in the church. Am I right? It's absolutely toxic. And, guys, is it not exhausting trying to get the approval of men? It's exhausting. Because if I try to get your approval, my effort to get your approval is going to be disapproved by the person over here. Isn't that the way it goes? You just can't win, and it's exhausting. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is Paul's verbal ice bucket on our frantic pursuit of self-glorification and self-worth. And so we're going to take a look at it. We're going to break it down in three parts. God's servants, God's favor, and God's exhibit. Let's start with God's servants. Verses 1 and 2. Let me reread this. It says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So right out of the gate, what does Paul do? Paul establishes his identity and his purpose in this two verses right here. He says that he and Apollos are servants of Christ. In other words, they live to please Jesus, who is their master. But is that just the way of the apostles? Is it just the apostles who are servants of Jesus? It's a yes or no? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah, yes. Uh, no, it's not. Okay? It's not just the apostles. It's every Christian. Jesus is our master. We're called to serve him. And so he says we're called to serve. So every single person, everyone in this room who calls on Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who says, that is my king, he gets to dictate my life, all of us, we're trying to follow 2 Timothy 2.15. We're trying to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so Paul says that him and Apollos are servants of Jesus. But he also says that they're stewards. Now, when I think of the word steward, maybe you think of the same thing. I kind of think of like a, a financial uh, manager, okay? I've never had one because I don't have enough finances to have somebody else help me with it. All right, it's like those five beans go there. Okay, so um, the great thing is, I think of a steward as a person who helps you responsibly take care of what you have, right? And so that you can use it to the best of your ability, not squandering it or wasting it. And so he says that they're called to be stewards. Now, what are they stewards of? The mysteries of God, the mystery of God. So what's that? Okay, well, it's a mystery. No, I'm just kidding, I'm gonna tell you. Uh, mystery, biblically speaking, is something that people... You gotta understand this. It's important you understand this. Mystery is something that people in their human weakness could not understand unless God graciously revealed it to them. In other words, you can't understand it unless God reveals it and shows it to you. And so the apostles say that they are stewards of this mystery. And Paul tells us what that mystery is in Ephesians chapter three. Let me read it to you. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, in other words, a servant of Christ, just like you and I, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by uh, revelation, as I have written briefly, 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, in other words, God has been secretly and sovereignly since the beginning of time working every single detail of the cosmos together to get all the way to one man, Jesus, who would then accomplish something for us that all the historical generations never saw coming, which is the redemption, not just of the Jews, but of all men and women. That's the mystery of the gospel. You get to live in it. God did that for thousands of years to get to Jesus so that all of us can have it. And that's a glorious mystery. And he's called to steward this. In other words, uh, you know, take care of this resource and then lavishly give it to other people. Okay? That is the plan. But the Corinthians, uh, they didn't see that as their job. Okay? They kind of were like, uh, you guys know Donald Duck? You heard of Donald Duck? Hopefully some of you. Okay, Donald Duck, he's got a grandpa duck. Have you ever seen the cartoons? Older folks, you know this. I know Sidney Gunn doesn't know this because she never watches any TV. Um, but uh, you remember the grandpa duck? He had this like room full of gold coins. Remember he used to like jump off a diving board and swim through that stuff, right? Some of you guys are smiling because it's like bringing back memories right now. Um, the Corinthians wanted to jump into that, right? Kind of swim in it, but they never wanted to be generous with it. They never stewarded it, stewarded that resource for the building of the body of Christ, for the kingdom. Instead, they actually went beyond the gospel to make it about themselves, right? To make it about themselves. But Paul says that as a steward, he's been called to not just faithfully, you know, take care of it and guard the doctrine, right? To know what it's about, but to give it to others. Here's what I tell you, friends, if you understand the gospel, you're in this room, um, if you understand it, you also understand that uh, two things. One, everybody in this world who does not have the gospel and doesn't understand it is hopeless. If you understand it and you believe it, you understand that they are hopeless. And number two, you should automatically think, I have to give this to other people before I die. I have to give this to other people before I die. Paul understood that. Okay, the very last letter that we have from Paul, he wrote to a young man named Timothy. Paul is about to die. And what does he tell Timothy? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter two, it's gonna be on the screen. He says this, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, be like Grandpa Duck, dive into that stuff, swim around in it, enjoy it, be filled up. I love that it says, let the grace of Jesus strengthen you. Let the undeserved, unmerited favor of God, him establishing your favor, let that strengthen you and embolden you. But then verse two, what does he say next? Once you've done that and you've been strengthened in it, verse two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says, hey, Timothy, uh, Grandpa Duck this stuff, swim in it, enjoy it, right? 
but then go give it away to other men who can then give it away to other men. And praise God for thousands of generations, uh, well, I don't know, thousands of generations, but for uh, many generations, for thousands of years, the people of God have done that. They've passed it on. And you and I in this room, if you know Jesus Christ, somebody told you about it. And praise God for that man or woman who brought you that mysterious, wonderful plan of God. Amen? You should text them when you leave here and say, thank you for telling me the gospel. They did what they were supposed to do. And so the apostles were called to steward the mysteries of God and to share those, move them on. Okay, so now Paul's gonna take a little bit of a, of a turn, but this turn he's about to take, he says, this is who I am. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to steward the mysteries of God, and I'm called to do it faithfully. The measurement of success in the Christian faith is just faithfulness. Just be faithful. He's now about to take a turn, and this turn right here reveals what the real problem is going on here. He says this, verse three, check it out. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you and by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm like, come on, Paul. Tell me you ain't got no sin, bro. But I am not thereby acquitted. What does he say next? Is it, the, uh, it is the Lord who judges me. Okay, so after Paul establishes his identity and his purpose, he turns to address judgment. Okay? And so why does he do that? He does that, as we've been talking about for weeks now, because the Corinthians are just so judgmental and they're judging one another's value in the body. From the way that they dress to what kind of job they have to how much time they could dedicate to the scripture. Do, do we do the same thing? We look left and right and say, well, I think I'm a little bit better believer than them. I memorize more verses than them. I've got a little bit better job than them. I drive a better car than them. I've got more hair than them. I'm a little older than them. We do this. We look left and right, and they were practicing this judgment of one another, and they were doing it for Paul. And what is Paul basically telling these guys? He's, he's just basically saying, look, listen, uh, you could judge me all you want, but your judgment of me is little. He didn't say it's meaningless. He said it's kind of little. He goes, even my own judgment of myself is kind of little. Some of you guys, the worst judgment that's going on in your life, it's what's happening in your head between your ears. The self-destruction you bring when you look at your own life, oh, woe is me. I can't just, can't measure up. I can't do it. And you're driving down the road and you're living in the depression and anxiety of that because you're putting on yourself something that the gospel is not putting on you. So he says, hey, y'all's judgment of me Look, I, I'm a steward of the mystery of God. I'm called to be faithful. What you say of me, it, it matters in the fact that I should listen and I should have humility to listen to that. Um, but in, in the grand scheme of things, when I die, I don't stand before you. I stand before Jesus. Friends, if you would understand that more deeply and more richly, I think you would actually live more faithful lives. That you would begin to not live for a pastor, not live for approval, but that you would rest in and I'm jumping ahead of myself, the favor of God. Proverbs 29, 25, write this down, friends. Put it somewhere because you're gonna need to reference this again this next coming week when you fall into this trap. It says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Believer, are you trusting the approval of others for your life or are you looking to Christ? Proverbs 29, 26, the next verse, it says this, many seek the face of the ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. The Corinthians were looking at each other and they're looking at leaders and they're saying, I want my approval from you. I want to know that I'm valuable because of what you say about me. And I'm going to try to establish this to create this buffer between me and everybody around me so they know that I am approved. And Paul's trying to show us, he's like, look guys, it's from the Lord. And because I trust in the Lord and I look to him in this mysterious gospel of grace, that your approval means little to me. I care about you, I wanna hear what you have to say, but it means little. Man, this passage came at a good time in my life. Um, I feel like, I, tell, I told this to my wife, I told this to my community, um, like, especially with Corinthians lately, I'll get in these passages and in the beginning, I'm like studying and I'm looking at it, I'm like, I don't even know what the heck this thing is talking about. But by the end of the week, I get to, I'm like, Bonnie, this is the most relevant and important message I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, this thing is so important. But it's great. Chet came to me. He was like, bro, what are you even going to say about this passage? And I'm like, dude, pray for me. Um, but I'll tell you right now, this came at a great time. Somebody approached me and just kind of let me in on a conversation this past week. And they said, hey, I, had this, I ran into this person. They're not a part of Outpost. And uh, just kind of had a conversation about where I was. And your name came up. And they absolutely turned on you in that conversation. And they told me that. But at the same time, I was going through this, and it came at a great time because you know what I wanted to do in my flesh? What do you want to do? You want to defend yourself, right? They said, what? And I want to run to the people's court and plead my case. And be like, no, 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 they don't understand. If they just come and have a conversation, we can, we can figure this out, right? And I, I started to feel the anxiety in my flesh. I'm just like y'all. I look left and right, and I'm like, am I doing a good job? God's not calling me to do that. And this scripture right here reminded me, hey, the, uh, the fear of man lays a snare. But those who trust in the Lord will be safe. And I had to go and pause and say, God, I need to confess. Forgive me for basing my value and evaluation on what man says to me. But God, if there's, here's the thing. If there's anything true in what they say, God, would you reveal that to me? Would you help me confess, repent, and change? Do you hear that part, though? We have to do that and have humble hearts. But you do not live for the opinions of men. You live for Christ. My life is not based on the judgment of men, but on the judgment of Christ. That's why Paul says next, verse five. Ready? He says this. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, the truth is, friends, my heart is far more wicked and deceitful and sinful than you or I can ever realize. But God sees my heart with complete perfection. But it's also said, it's true of you. He sees it in you. I know, I don't know about you, when you think about that, it's like there's coming a day where even like the things you didn't even see, the, the intentions of your heart are gonna be judged. Does that make anybody a little nervous? Just a little bit anxious? It totally does, man. Doesn't it make you, in a community, if you knew that was happening, right, that's gonna happen. If somebody's about to reveal that about you, don't you wanna first be like, I'm gonna beat them to the punch. I'm gonna tear them down first, right, so we could deal with their stuff before we even get to mine. It insulates you, doesn't it? Right? 
We do that constantly, and it's a way to protect ourselves, to keep people at a distance. Because it's terrifying, man. It's terrifying stuff to think about and talk about. Uh, I told you guys a while back, I had a conversation with a group of Mormon uh, young men over here. Great conversation. Loved the conversation. One of the things that uh, these young men said to me, uh, one of the guys said, hey, even though I've given my life to Christ, um, if I don't do everything I can in my life to do good, I'm not going to feel comfortable in Jesus' presence. And it uh, makes me think of this passage, right? There's going to come a day where it's going to be disclosed. And uh, in, in a way, I told him, like, hey, actually, you're right. Hebrews 9.27 says, right? Uh, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And I said, hey, you know what? There is going to be judgment after this is done. But there's a difference between what you think you're going to feel and what I know I'm going to feel because of what verse 28 says. It says this, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Why? Because it's been dealt with. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Man, that Mormon was not eagerly waiting for the presence of God and that judgment that was coming. I tell you right now, I am. Here's the thing, when I go home, I have the privilege right now, and I thank God every time. When I come into the house, I don't know if y'all met my son, he's a little wild, but I come into the back door, and as soon as I open the door, he doesn't even know if it's me, but he just screams, Daddy! Just screams it at the top of his lungs. And he does that because there's no fear in his heart about my presence showing up into his life. He knows that his daddy's here, and it's all good. How much more our heavenly father when we understand the gospel of grace? Do you understand that? When we go to be in his presence, we find out that we have God's favor. If you are a Christian and you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus, you have God's favor. Let's look at it. Verse six, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I love what Paul does here first. He practices, uh, I call it the Ezra principle. He draws a circle around himself and says, before I tell you what to do, I'm gonna apply this to myself and my brother Apollos, the guy that you're also judging with me. Ezra 7.10, right? You wanted to know the word of the God, wanted to obey it, and then teach it to others. And so Paul says, I'm gonna teach this to myself. I'm gonna show myself the gospel. Why? So that he doesn't go beyond the gospel. You hear me? Listen. He says, you have gone beyond the gospel. What does that mean? Well, this past week, I was having a conversation with Sydney in the office, and we're talking about this, and uh, she gave me a great analogy. Uh, some of you guys know Sydney Gunn. She played golf in high school. She played very well, and she got to play in college. And there was a season when she played in college uh, where she didn't get to travel with the team as much as she would have liked to. Now, she's on the team, but she didn't travel as much as she liked. And uh, in her mind, her first thought wasn't not that she was, you know, not a good enough golfer. Her thought was like, well, maybe if I dressed differently, 
that they would be, I would be able to travel, right? If I dress more like maybe what everybody else dressed me. And then she thought, well, maybe if the guys' golf team, um, if the, I had a better relationship with the guys. And then she thought, well, if I start talking to my coach more often and build a relationship with him, maybe he'll like me and I'll get to travel with the team. And I said, Sydney, well, what was the real reason you didn't get to travel? She goes, because I wasn't good enough at golf. That's it. It had nothing to do with how she dressed, who she was friends with, and whether or not the coach liked her. The fact is the coach chose her to be on that team. Am I right? Chose her to be on the team. She's on the team. But that coach has every right to choose who he's gonna send and where he's gonna take them. We're gonna come back to that later in the third point. But here's the thing is, Sydney was going beyond the game of golf to establish her value for the team. Friends, many of us, we go beyond the gospel to establish our value rather than trusting the fact that God says, you're in my family. You're in my family. Well, I want you to use me like Billy Graham. He's like, well, that's not what I have planned for you, but you are on my family. Your, your value has been set. What's the difference between you and others? And when we allow a culture of non-gospel evaluation into the church, it creates exhaustion. It creates exhaustion where there should be life in the church, right? Shouldn't there be life here? Life. Because we know who we are in Christ. You know, uh, Richard Leahy, a prominent psychologist, said, uh, he's an anxiety specialist. He says that the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. I don't think we have to have a college education to guess why. It's the comparison game. What they have versus what I don't. Or the perception of what I should be so that I could be valued and accepted. The New York Times of 2011 uh, released a stat that said 30% of women take sleeping pills before they go to bed. Why? Because they can't fall asleep because of all the anxieties of life. And you may say, oh, it's, that's just motherhood. Not if you're in Christ, it's not. Tavidjan, who is a uh, author, uh, a, man, a pastor down in Florida, he wrote this, the news of God's inexhaustible grace has never been more urgent because the world has never been so exhausted. In our culture where success equals life and failure equals death, people spend their lives trying to secure their own meaning, worth, and significance. Do you feel that way? Man, be honest with yourself for a minute. The greatest thing you could do to take a step towards freedom is to say, yes, I'm allowing what I perceive to be that I need to be to get in the way of what gospel says I am. I was exposed to this misunderstanding in my life uh, a few months ago. Bonnie and I went to go see this guy named Doug Siggins. He's a pastor over in Powell. Love the brother. And if you're seeing him, I just wanna say good on you. And we went to spend some time with him to talk through some things, get some gospel counsel. And uh, while we were there, he told me, he goes, Greg, Bonnie, you guys are legalists. And I was like, do what? Now, fortunately, God was kind of revealing that to me and Bonnie already. But one of the things he said, and I never even heard of this, he goes, Greg, you are a sad legalist. And Bonnie, you're a happy legalist. And I was like, okay, now I'm totally confused. So this is what he meant. As a sad legalist, okay, a person who's looking at the rules and living under the burden of this pressure of what I think I need to be, 
I'm a sad legalist. I have a habit of sorrow and anxiety over my inability to trust in the finished work of Christ. So I turn into the, I'm, I'm the spiritual Eeyore, is what he's saying. And as a happy legalist, Bonnie felt that she deserved more value because of the way that she was living. She's like, look, I've been living for this, this way for you, Lord. Why would you allow this to happen in my life? I've done nothing but try to follow you. And she felt like she deserved more value. So Bonnie failed to see what she had was given to her. And I failed to see that what I didn't have was already given. Let me say that again. Bonnie failed to see that what she had was given to her. And I failed to see that what I didn't have was already given. That approval, it was already given to me. What are you feeling due, due to your inability to see the gospel correctly? What are you feeling right now? Are you operating as a happy legalist or a sad legalist? Here's the reality. When we begin to see the gospel as God's great marriage proposal to you to say, when he humbly got down on his knee, right, lowered himself to the point of a servant, even a servant to die on the cross for our sake, when we begin to see that and we say yes to him and we enter into relationship, we know we could not be more loved by God. Hey, at your worst, you could not be more loved by God. At your best, he doesn't love you any more than when you were at your worst. He loves you. And when you live in that, two things happen. Number one, you begin to have freedom. And number two, you start to give God freedom in what he will ask of you. You hear that? You will begin to give God freedom what he's gonna ask of you. And that's where I get the phrase, you will be God's exhibit. Let me talk to you, God's exhibit. Verse eight, he says this, already you have all that you want, Corinthians. Remember, they're trying to say that I'm more valuable than that guy, whatever. You have all that you want. You've already, already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's being sarcastic. He, and he, now he's about to use some, he's using some hyperbole. So this is what Paul's doing. He's about to set up a compare and contrast between the apostles and those who are following Jesus, resting in the God's grace, and these guys. This is what he says. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise for Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor for some reason, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. He's saying, guys, you're living in fear and anxiety and you're trying to set each other up over one another and look how much important I am. He goes, we're apostles of Jesus Christ and we're living like this. Now, don't be mistaken. Paul's not saying that poverty is more spiritual than wealth. He's not saying that. But they're living in some spiritual poverty with what, the way they're performing. So here's the thing is, the Corinthians had a desired evaluation and the apostles had a desired evaluation. Look at this. The Corinthians looked to worldly standards for their evaluation. 
man, I do this just naturally. You do this naturally. We look to worldly standards to decide whether or not we're valuable. But Paul and Apollos, they look to the gospel. And when you do that, you have two different pathways of accomplishing your evaluation. The Corinthians chose the way of health, wealth, strength, fame, and education. Paul and Apollos, they chose the upside down way of Jesus. He says this, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. They chose the upside down way of Christ. Any of you are like, man, I just want to be the refuse of the world. Man, I just, man, I tell you what, I want to be scum of the earth. I want to be, I want to be seen as poor and foolish. Here's the thing is, I know you don't want that. That's the reason why some of you and me, we haven't taken steps of boldness towards Jesus because we're like, man, I'm going to look like a fool if I do that. I don't want to be like that Canadian pastor who got arrested. I'm going to look like a fool. They're going to put me up on the news and they're going to slander me. I don't want that. I don't want to have that view of marriage. I don't want to have that view of, uh, of, of, of sexuality. I'm going to look like a fool in our culture. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm going to stay back here. No, Christians aren't, aren't that way. We don't want to look like fools, but I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon says, uh, if it is foolish to believe what we find in Scripture, we will remain fools to the end. Anybody with me on that? Remain fools to the end. God's preferred method of creating value lies not in the believer's desperate pursuit of self-glorification, but in our humble submission of one's life to Christ. Listen, it's in death that we find life. It's in being last that we become first. It's in serving that we become leaders. It's in weakness and suffering that we are made strong. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Christ builds us up and proves our evaluation. That's what the gospels say. That's what, gospel, uh, that's what Jesus let out. Here's what I want to do. You remember that, that picture at the very beginning? I want to show you when that picture was sold for $1.4 million, I want to, maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but I want to show you what happens the second after it's sold. Okay? Watch this. Last chance at $850,000. $860,000. didn't know that inside of the frame that he built personally, he put a paper shredder. So when it sold, it hit the gavel, he pressed the button, and it shredded half of the painting. Shredded it. Can you imagine you spent $1.4 million? 
just to have it shredded in your face? That's amazing. Now, here's the thing. Why do I show you that? I show you that because that painting is now worth more than $1.4 million. Do you know that? Because the painter was the one who chose to do that. It created more value for it. God purchased you with his own blood. He owns you. You're his servant. You belong to him because of what the gospel says. And as a Christian, we say, praise him. He can totally lead my life. And if he could totally lead your life, then he could lead you where he, he wants you to go, maybe not where you want to go. And sometimes God likes to take us on a journey that's going to shred us. You feel like half of you is being torn apart. But in doing so, he is creating greater and deeper strength and value and courage and love and peace and patience and kindness and self-control in you than you could ever create in yourself. Let me tell you this, friends, and you need to know this. God is better at making much of you than you making much of you. And he wants to create value in you. The Corinthians forgot that. They looked at their own selves. They tried to set their own value. They tried to create their own system of legalism and licentiousness. Church of Cody, Wyoming, listen to me. You can't do that. You need to swim in the gospel. You need to steward the mystery of the gospel in your own life well so that you may be strong, so that you could go and pour out to others, regardless of what they think about you. Stop looking left and right. These are people around you who are sinners just like you who need God's grace. Friends, don't be the sad legalist who's always beating yourself up. God loves you more than you love you. And he's for you more than you could be for yourself. That's our God. Right now, I hope you love God more because of that. I hope you love God more because of that. Guys, my prayer is that things are are about to get tougher for you. And if you decide to live boldly for Jesus, no matter what, it's gonna get tough. But I pray that when that happens, you'll look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith, you would consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't grow weary. You're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Well, Father, thank you uh, for your love for us. Thank you for setting our value. Thank you for this, this scripture right here that reminds us that we don't have to look to the world. We don't have to look to our performance. We just need to look to the cross. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for doing what I could not do to rescue me. I pray for my friends this morning. If they're walking with a burden, God, I pray that you would help them un, unstrap that backpack to drop the weight just by simply looking to you in faith. In Jesus, I pray that the church of Cody would be servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God, and that we would be faithful. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.